So I'm not going to hold back any further. I want to introduce everyone to New York City legendary DJ, producer, remixer. Run Sunday Mass for everybody. This man's name is David Morales. David, thank you so much, brother, for coming on. Thank you. I, I, you know what? Whenever I need somebody to introduce me, <laughs> I'm going to ask for you. <laughs> that, that was so, I didn't know whether to like grab a box of tissues or have a shot on that one. <laughs> it's the truth, though. Come on, we love you. We know that. It's, no, you know what? It's really, it's funny to have somebody talk about you. Because you know what? After doing this for so many years, it's really interesting when you hear somebody speak about you in a third person. When they throw all the names and you're all this and that, because, you know, as life goes on, you know what I mean? Doing this for over 40 years, you know what I mean? It's like, wow, yes, you know what? Oh, my God. And I'm, because it's important not to, not to drink the Kool-Aid and get lost in that thing. So, you know I mean, you know, I love what I do. But it's it's very funny to hear when they really describe you and they big you up and they talk about the accomplishments. And you know what I mean? Because it's been like a journey and you just keep it moving. You don't have time to reflect on that because you have you have to be busy with what's ahead of you. But thank you for pointing all that stuff out. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've been told I'm the love child of Oprah Winfrey, Phil Donahue, and all them put together. So this is kind of cool that, you know, I'm able to have this conversation with you like this. So let's get right into the first question as I ask everyone. The younger, I've seen the picture of you with the headphones holding the two vinyl records in the late 70s. We know that. We know you were always a DJ. But how does music find you? Where does it begin for you? You know, mom's house, where, how does it start? I want to say the first time I noticed a record, it had to be, it was Spinning Wheel by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. It was an RCA record. I still remember it was, the label was beige with the white RCA, seven inch, of course. And I must have been, like I said, it was my babysitter's house. So I had to be, I don't know, five, four, five, five, really. I couldn't be more than five because I was able to at least understand and it's funny because my parents are puerto rican i mean and i live in obviously in brooklyn i lived i grew up in williamsburg and you know it was one of those block with factories junkies social clubs i mean it was like it was you know what we call the ghetto you know what i mean and um there was a social, so, 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 so I like music and I like American music. I mean, cause in our house, you know, moms, you know, they house is stereo and the only music was, you know, Latin music. You know what I mean? So, but I wasn't into music that even when I used to go, we used to go to the pair of my family's house to dance and all that, to well, the, the parties. I would always go to the bedroom, which was always a coat check. <laughs> In those parties, the bedroom was a coach. And I would just watch TV. I, I couldn't be bothered with hearing, you know, with hearing, with hearing Latin, Latin music. And, and, you know, I wasn't even into Elton John either or, or any of this. I liked the Temptations. I liked the Jackson 5. Um, you know, uh, my God, you know, the Supremes, um, you know, the OJs. Glad it's not in the pips. I like black music, for lack of a better word. There was a, underneath us, you know, one of those days, you know, where every ghetto had, you know, they had their social clubs, which was really just an illegal place with flat black paint, day glow sprays, and a jukebox. And obviously where I lived, the jukebox had, you know, Mr. Big Stuff, Honeycombs, One Ass, Young and Single and Free. You know what I mean? The Jackson, so this is where I was at. You know what I mean? So my first record that I bought, I must have been, I was in the sixth grade. It was Neither One of Us by Gladys Knight in the Pips. 
My second one was the OJs, Put Your Hands Together. I remember buying that record and putting the, 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 that cheap stereo speaker out the window and playing that shit for 100 times. I think my mother wanted to break it all over my head because I played that record to death. You know what I mean? So, you know what I mean? I, uh, you know what I mean? I liked music. Yes, TV was one thing, but when it came to music, I liked my funk. Yeah, you understand? Yeah. I didn't care for lack, I don't want to see, I'm not I didn't, I wasn't into white white music, you know what I mean? I was into WWRL. You know what I mean? I wasn't into what was it? WABC. <laughs> Even though that's the first station you hear. What was the other station on FM something? Anyway, so I mean, and then um um. I used to hang out when I was going to junior high school. Um, I liked, you know, my, uh, I liked music. My aunt, my aunt, well, my cousins, they were better off than we were. And I mean, th their father had a better job. They had toys, man. They had bicycles and they had a Moran sound system. At my house, we had one of those things that it was like, it looked like furniture, the TV, and the stereo. We all know what that's like. If any of y'all come my age, you know what that was. You know what I'm saying? Some things were heavy. It was on four legs, and it was something else. My cousin at their house, they had a Marantz receiver, and they had these speakers. And I was like, yo, I used to enjoy just, you know, listening and, you know, playing whatever they had, or even listening, because I, I knew their sound system was better than ours. So I grew up in Flatbush. I used to go to Walt Whitman Junior High School. On Flatbush Avenue between Church and Snyder, meanwhile, there was Erasmus Hall High School right there. There was a store, a record store called Titus Oaks there, and it was two floors. And it was one of those stores that they sold. You know, they had everything. You know what I mean? Um, and even though I had no job, I had no money to buy records, but I used to go into that record store every day when I got out of school, okay? And those were the days when I went to school because <laughs> I would go every day, even the days when I didn't go to school. And I would go, listen, I used to steal records, okay? Without the covers. <laughs> I had no money to buy, you know what I mean? So I used to hang out with, with friends of, with, well, uh, from my crew, say my crew, we used to hang out, you know, we just, we just hang out and, and they would say, you know, they used to call me Flacco back in them days. He just said, Flacco, play some music for us. And I would just, I was a selector. I sat next to the stereo, you know what I mean? You know, and I would play music. So really, and this, this was way before, well, not way before. It was really right before the two turntables, the mixer thing came out. Right. Okay. So, okay. So, all right. And then. I remember, like, those were days like Grandmaster Flowers used to play out in the parks in Brooklyn. So, you know, I see this guy out there with two decks and a mixer, and I was like, yo, what is this? Okay? And I'm talking about 1975. Okay? And I was like, okay, this is something else. My junior high school prom when Dr. Love was out was like the record that day, you know, and instead of like asking my date to dance, I was busy looking at the DJ or what he was doing. <laughs> but let me tell you the funny story. So now my first mixer was a mic mixer from the from the blackout in 1977. And I had one of those, it was it was hijacked from Radio Shack that was broken into. It was a mic mixer. And I jimmied that mic mixer. It had no cueing. It had quarter inch, left and right, left and right. So that was my first mixer. I didn't know anything about cueing. So imagine, you had two knobs for each that you had to do for each channel. My first, turn, my first pair of turntables, first of all, they weren't even mine. They were like, however they arrived at outdoor. <laughs> And one had pinch control, one didn't have pinch control. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. So the what? first time, the first time I touched a real mixer, 
we went to a house party in the Bronx. And this was when the record um, and the one of the first mixes that came out was called The Clubman One. It was very famous back there, back in those days. So listen, what the, imagine the setup is in the kitchen. The speakers are in the living room. And, you know, back in those pre-war buildings, they were big apartments. You know what I'm saying? They were huge. You had no clue. DJs today don't know. It's like, we all love our monitors, but y'all don't know what it is to play without no monitors. <laughs> so, so it was my, my friend's brother's house. So he was like, you know, he had juice. He goes, yo, Dave, you're Flacco. You want to play some records? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And I used to get the guy's records. I never forget what my first record was. It was Zing went to strings of my heart by the tramps. So the guy was queuing with the headphones and I'm like, okay, let me make believe like I know what I'm doing because I never use headphones. I used to play with a little, you know, radio shack bullshit mic mixer. It wasn't made for, for DJ. And he, this guy was using, he was doing playlists. I put on the headphones trying to be cool. I flipped the switch. I heard music. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> What's going on here? You know what I mean? So, you know, um, and of course, uh, you know, I even though I didn't have money to to buy equipment yet, you know what I mean? Not while I was, not while I was going to school. I mean, I, I dropped out of school and I got a job working working a restaurant. I was one of those kids that, you know, used to go buy rock and soul because my first turntables came from rock and soul. So, you know, they had the layaway plan. <laughs> but, and how my long, first, how long did it take you to lay away those turntables to get them? And well, what I first, well wait, wait, wait a minute. I first got the SLB ones, which was the cheapest ones to buy that had pitch control. They were belt driven, the B ones. So I couldn't I, I could mess around with the 1700s back then or the 1800s. You know what I mean? They were, and, so, um, but I was one of those kids. I used to walk by dream, you know what I mean? You know, you know, you go to the record store, Walter Gibbons was working at rock and soul. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dumpston, Keith Dumpston. Keith, Keith Dumpston. Yeah. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So even though I didn't know them at that time, I mean, I didn't even know who Walter Gibbons was. How about that? You know what I mean? And, you know, you went there, you know, even though you had no money to buy records, okay, buy, buy records, but, you know, walk by and look at that mixer and look at those turntables and dream, dream. Listen, I did 316s. I, I mean, the days where you carried, you took every crate of record. If you had 10 crates of record, you took all 10 crates to a game. Okay? Um, playing weddings for $15, and it's like, Having to chase people down to collect fifteen dollars. I've done parties for Don for 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 um, what's his name Don King for the boxing matches. Um, you know we've all done been down that road. I used to play for people even though I had no equipment and I knew people that loved that liked how I play. They bought turntables. They, they bought a system and would invite me over to the house and say, "I want you to come over my house and play some music for me." And you know what I mean. You go to hang on somebody's house and let's say the TV's on and they got their wife and they got their kids and sitting there like, I can't wait for him to say, yo, want to play some records? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, you know, I I, I have spoken to, to some people, you know, that have asked me things and I said, you know, this thing was my life. Even back in the days, like when you watch the get down, that's my story. You know what I'm saying? I used to, I, uh, you know, I mean, I used to, you know, I used to do graffiti and music. I mean, they were both intertwined. I used to break dance. I mean, that that was really my life. I mean, doing those house parties, I did hooky parties. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean, where I make kids cut out from school is like, you know what? But I lived to play. You know what I'm saying? It's like every day was like I was consumers. How do I? My parents would go to work. I was going to Prospect Heights. I go. I buy a. I buy a, a quarter of OE, a trade bag of weed. My parents went to work. I go back home. 
in my bedroom and I'm banging it and I'm banging this shit out. I had 18 inch speakers <laughs> when I was 15 years old in, in, me, in my bedroom. And the first discotheque I went to and saw a real DJ. Right. What's that? What was this? It was a Starship Discovery one and Ernie Dunder was playing. And I was, it was the end of the Starship because, because, um, <laughs> because bad people like us were getting in the club. Right. You know That's when you knew oh, it was done. Oh, the, the, no, not, no, I didn't know back then. No, no, now, no, I'm saying. But, but now in retrospect, I got in, security let us into the side door. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I'm in a star shit. You know what I'm saying? And, and I remember they had the DJ booth. It was an out, it was an outrazer sound system. And they had the, the the booth was like in a bubble. I was that kid with the, with his nose up against that bubble like this. I didn't move from there. You know what I'm saying? And anyway, so as, as I went on over the years, I had to thank. You know, and, you know, I used to buy commercial records. You know what I mean? Because that's what I understood because my my filter wasn't a club because I was too young to go to a club in reality. You know what I mean? So the only music I knew was commercial black music. You know what I mean? My, my, the only imports, imports, my first import I bought at Downstairs Records when Yvonne Turner was working there was The Stranger and... Martin Circus, okay, and um, my my brain is like funny. So I played. So there was an older crowd from my neighborhood. That was Lulu, um, this guy named Lenny, um, um, and some other people. They used to go to the loft. I had never been to the loft. They were loft members. So. Um, Lulu's boyfriend at the time, Lenny, was having, she was doing uh, a private, no, not a surprise birthday for him. So she asked me to play. Um, I mean, um, I had played, I had played before that for Lulu at a house party when I had mismatched turntables. So Lulu, I've been down with Lulu for like a long time. Many of y'all may know Lulu, you know, Lulu, you know, she's been around the parties. Yeah. The glamorous, the glamorous Lulu. <laughs> glamorous Lulu. So, so you know, Lulu knew everybody back in them days. You know what I'm saying? She knew, she knew everybody. So, you know, when she did house parties, uh, the the bar was was at the kitchen with one of those half doors, charging a dollar for a drink. La la la. So, and that was when Madeline Kane was out. You know, what I mean, Rough Diamond and those records. So. She did a party um, for this guy, for, for, for her boyfriend at the time, and they bought me a bunch of these loft records, which was really a lot of imports, a handful of records that were like, you know, check out these jams. And I was like, where, where do I get this music from? Because that opened my eyes to a whole nother world of music, the loft. I knew first choice. I knew what was available. You know what I'm saying? But when it came to power line, when it came to love money, when it came to city, country, city, I was like, yo, like, ciao. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, expansions. Anyway, this and whatever, 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 whatever. So where do I buy this? Okay, here's where Vinyl Mania comes in. I mean, so I was one of those kids where a copy of Crown Heights Affairs, say a prayer for two, is like $75. But when I got that record, I was like, yo, I got bow, my God, bow. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, the journey, my God. I, I, I used to, and I, I was a loft head. I used to go every day, every, every Saturday after I became a member. Me and David became friends. David had gave me some books. I even did a graffiti poster for the loft that he put up. I was so happy. I drew him, I drew him, you know, a shirt with the loft that he wore. And I was like, oh my God, you know? And, so that really, for me, was a turning point when it came to music. Right. You know okay. I mean, I mean, I mean, as far as records, you know what I mean? But see, as you, far have as explain, you have to explain to everybody why, because that music was not accessible that easy for people. No, that's the no, thing. because because there's two places where I where, where I mainly bought records. That was 
Downtown Records and Rock and Soul. I mean, um, Downtown, I went to first. I think the first time I went to Downtown, I was probably 14 years old, 15 years old. Then, of course, was, then I, my second store was, but when it came to, how you say, um, Downstairs Records was a little more um, eclectic kind right. of thing. And downstairs was downstairs, you know, it was in Penn Station. It was a little, you know what I mean? So, um, I, so when, 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 um, and when I lived in Flatbush, I had played, I mean, I have done, you know, I had done some house parties, you know, you know, back in the day. Um, I started to do parties at a club called the Ozone Layer. And the way I started was I had played for some girl's birthday. And in reality, it was like the only people that really came were my friends from the neighborhood. A lot of our friends from the neighborhood, they either would go to the garage or go to the law. Most of them used to go, used to go to the law. So I started doing parties that started like maybe once a month. Um, I had Lulu as I had Lulu as a as a hostess. I had um, um, Master Rick. Um, uh, 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 he was also, you know, and I had some other people, you know. That were also, we, we I call them hosts, but they were, I guess you would call them promoters today. Sure. You know I mean? but, but they were hosts, you know what I mean? But it's okay. So everybody bought, bought people, but the one thing I realized, there was a common denominator with, with a hardcore of, of, of people that were coming from my music. You understand? So then I took from, let's say, once in a while to once a month, and then I started doing every Friday. And um, I, still had, I still had my original job. I used to, I used to design the flyers um, on my coffee break. I used to, back to them days, we used to do a mailing list. I used to put them in the envelopes. I used to lick the envelopes. <laughs> I used to blah, 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 blah. I used to put the flies, go to the train stations, the bus stops, you know, the phone booths back in the day. So trust me, I did my hustle. You understand? So um, I would do the parties on Friday and then go to law on Saturdays. And then, you know what I mean? There was a time that I took a break from the ozone and a couple of times on a Friday, I went to the garage. I went there and I went there Friday, focus Friday was straight night. And I'm talking about when I was 19, 20 years old. Um, when I was, and I only played in Brooklyn. I mean, I used to work at the record pool um, for the record and I had access to acts. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, I was bringing in, you know, my God, Colonel Abrams, Anthony Malloy, J.M. Silk, Carl Bean. Um, nobody was doing that in Brooklyn. So, I mean, I ended up quitting my job because I was making some good money, like really good money. Wait a minute. A lot of people weren't even doing that in Manhattan, no less in Brooklyn, bringing acts. Right. That's the difference back then. And then in 1981, that's a 1983, I'll never forget. Um, I was in my house with Kenny Carpenter, with Kenny Carpenter, Kenny Carpenter because Kenny was my next door neighbor. <laughs> and I remember, my God, let me before I go over there. Let me tell you about. It. So when I first met Kenny, first of all, I, I used to his mixes on what was that ninety two point? What, what was that station? Nine point seven. Oh no, Paco was on. No, Paco was on. Disco ninety two. Yeah, I thought Kenny was a white boy. <laughs> Why were you mistaken? <laughs> I was mistaken. <laughs> when I say my next door neighbor, I swear to God, my next door neighbor, yes. literally. So anyway, we met. I went. We, I went and hung out with him at Bonds International. I never forget that day. It was the first and only, and it was like so massive. We had to take an escalator. I never saw a DJ use a hand truck to take his records from outside to the DJ booth. Kenny had a hand truck because that thing was like. Anyway, so we ended up becoming, um, you know, you know, great friends. So one time we were hanging out and we were in my apartment and, and Mike Brody calls me and says, hi, my name is Mike Brody. And everybody knew who Mike Brody was. I mean, you, you knew David Mancuso on the law. 
and in the garage, you knew it was Lila Van, and you know who Mike Brody, even if you didn't know who Mike Brody was, you knew Mike Brody owned the garage. So he says, Hi, my name is Mike Brody, I'm a cook for my parents garage. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's a- <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. You know, um, we would like you to come play, you know, I want you to come and play at my club. I was like, yeah, right. I'm like, yo, Kenny. So it only after after a minute that it kicked in, it was like, oh, shit. You know what I mean? It's Mike Brody. Mind you, I've never played him in hand. You understand what I'm saying? Never. And he's asking me, you know, uh, it never heard me. He was like, I want you to come and play in my club. And I'm like, oh, shit, wait a minute now. And it was really because, and it, between Judy Weinstein and David DePino, I have to thank them because that's how I got the best Paradise Club. And how did now, that happen? Well, that's so wait, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. I, I was still playing at the Ozone in Brooklyn. Right? By then, I had Kenny playing with me because Bonds had closed, which I got to give Kenny a, lot, Kenny a lot of credit because he went from Bonds International that on any given night, he was doing 5,000 people a night. Now, I go Bonds closed, I bring him into the really... It's not even the the bathroom is probably bigger than the ozone layer. The bathroom of Bonds International. So, um, you know, uh, I took Kenny on to to play with me, and we had some amazing nights, some amazing years there. Oh my God, it's like so that how so that's how I it, it allowed me to go play at the garage. So when Mike Brody approached me, and I was like. Okay, obviously, it came from Judy Weinstein and David DePino. Main, I had to say mainly Judy. Because he never heard me, didn't ask me for a tape, nothing. It was based on recommendation. Now, mind you, now that maybe Judy and Bobby Shaw and other people, maybe they came out to the Ozone maybe twice in the whole time because, hey, it was Flatbush Avenue, Brooklyn. And how rough was it back <laughs> you know then? I mean, tell it, me it was rough. It, it, I tell you, uh, I decided. It was rough enough. My security was strapped. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was a rough time. Um, you know what I mean? So, yep. Anyway, so he says, you know, um, I would like you to play. And, you know, I have Friday and Saturday. I'm like, well, I don't know if I could play a Saturday because I never played for a gay crowd. He was like, look, I just want you to come and play music. I said, okay, great. So, um, who would you like to perform? I got Captain Rap. And Jocelyn Brown. I never forget. And I played, I swear, I remember October 13, 14, 1983, Friday and a Saturday. I played each night 11 hours, a total of 22 hours. First of all, I had never played on Thorns 125 Mark IIs. I was like, can you put in some techniques? <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you. So how did you deal with that? Now being thrown in the booth of, of Larry's booth and now dealing with Thorne's turntables, never playing. What'd you do? When I mixed my first record, I remember I first started off, I think it was Encore, Shrevel In. And I forgot the second record was a record on the Easy Street, but I don't remember the name. But when I did that first mix on those turntables, I was like, wow. I was like, wow. Because even though I was supposed to go with a sound system with Larry, but that was like an impossible task. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but you know what I mean? Listen, I was a, I was a, I was a sheepskin kid that wore Adidas. I, you know what I mean? I was a knucklehead from Brooklyn that liked music. You know what I'm saying? I, I roll up there, you know, a knucklehead from Brooklyn. I don't know nothing about all this other stuff. You know what I mean? I used to take LSD, you know, and I was one of those dancers that go to the law from beginning to the end. I mean, and the same, same, you know, when I went to the garage. So, you know, you know, you go, and I remember meeting meeting Joey Llanos. I mean, that's how long we've been friends. Jesus Christ, since 1983. Um, and it was just so, the experience was so, they put my name on the marquee, and people were like, yo, how do you pull that off? Yeah. Because you want to know, because Lenny, in reality, there were so many other people that deserved to play there way before me. You know what I mean? From Kenny Carpenter to Tony Humphreys to uh to Bruce Forrest. I oh mean, yeah, list is a huge list in New York. You know what I mean? You yeah. know what I mean? I mean there was a lot of you know great DJs, you know what I'm saying? 
But obviously, there was a lot of politics involved. But I was immune to the politics because I I didn't understand shit. <laughs> now, in retrospect, now I understand what it means to shave. Right. Trust me. The word shave. I was, I, I was like Teflon Don because I didn't know anybody. And I guess that's the reason why they asked me was because I didn't know anyone. You understand? And everybody else that was part of the scene, everybody knew knew everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't know nobody. You know what I mean? It was my my first club that I played at in out of Ozone Layer. It was the Paradise Garage, the greatest club in the world, the baddest sound system ever. You know what I'm saying? It was like, and you know, I walked into the whole myth of this place because I never seen a DJ booth. You hear, I used to go there and like trip and just like be against the wall in La La Land and looking at the booth and you just heard, wow, he's got four jacks, he's got ditch, and the blah, 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 blah. But I got to tell you, so one thing, um, to this day, to uh, this day, it, I've never I've never seen a DJ booth like the Paradise I, Garage. I said the same, I've been saying that my whole life and I've never seen it again. I've never seen a booth like that ever in my life, to this day. That was like rock star shit. You know what I'm saying? And we're talking about, I mean, I went to play there in 83. So, you know, not that it was built in 83. That thing was like that from the end of the 70s. It's like, yo, man, that thing was like, chow, man, where you going? That thing was like, oh. Anyway, so, and, you know, I have to say being, of course, Kenny got me into, for the record, Judy Weinstein's record pool. And being part of that record pool, really, it was really it was the who's who of any of anybody was in that organization of DJs, from remixers to producers. We talking about Steve Thompson. We talking about Bruce Forrest, Chef Pettibone, Jellybean Benitez, T. Scott, um, Larry Levan, Francois Kavorkin. Yo. You understand what I'm saying? You don't get better than that. the guy who doesn't get any better than that. So I used to have Steve Thompson alone, which he ended up doing Metallica, Guns N' Roses. You know Steve Thompson. And Steve Thompson was a DJ out of Long Island. Steve used to come every week, pick up his records, check out the new Madonna I did, check out the new Rolling Stones, the new this, the new that. Yo, the new Aretha Franklin. You know what I mean? It's like, and I used to peep his brain. Oh my God. Bruce Forrest was, which for me is one of the baddest technical DJs I've ever heard of in my life throw down on two turntables, besides when he's, you know, you know, you know, scratch champions. But we talk about mixing pound for pound, all this kind of stuff. Bruce was a maniac. I mean, he had two copies of every record and he just like, you just stood there and just like, yo. 1985, that I remember, we had, he bring a, a TR-505 drum machine to the DJ booth. Uh, first started with a CZ101 keyboard before we got to before he went on to the DX100. He had a home, he had two uh Korg samplers, the 1000, the 1000 and the 2000. He had a box cutter that was he he did some MacGyver shit with the <laughs> box cutter. Wait, the guitar pedal, the guitar pedal or sustain pedal, right? Took the sample. I swear, I when I say a box cutter, you know, with a box cutter back to the, the supermarket yeah. with a spring, and that's how I used to check it. Three decks, reel to reel, two samplers, keyboard, drum machine. Here comes David Cole. We're talking about 1985. Bruce Forrest, for me, was is one of well, is my mentor when it comes to the studio. You know what I'm saying? Um he first got me off on editing, you know, some of his his projects. And then which I started editing some things for some people. And of course, and I ended up getting a chance to do a mix on a record. Jelly Bean gave me a shot in 1987 to mix Winnie Houston Bubble Save the Day. Um uh, you know, um, so anyway, I got Ray Smith from AM Records back in them days, gave me my first, he gave me my first mix, I think 86. It was Tremaine Hawkins' Child of the King. And the first time I went to, what was that? It was a major studio on uh, right where Sam Ash is. What's that studio over there? I forgot what it was. Not, not. Anyway. Yeah. 
No, there was a studio right there when it was very expensive to um what? Not quite um no no quite was around the corner. Unique. No, unique was down a block. There was one of those really expensive ones. Um I remember. right track. Right track. Oh, right, it was track. right track. I I I think I think it was right track. Um anyway, so I think uh I I was working and then 1987, I was working at a club called Limelight, Nine Limelight, Love Light. And Joe Heck that was doing promotions for RCA. I was working, I was working for Judy at the record pool. I was a pool director. Right. Remember that. And I I'm a big fan of imagination. So this was when Rick Astley was out and Stock Aikman and, and Waterman were really big, you know, big English producers, remixes. I'm at the time. So in the record pool, we got this imagination record that Arthur, the Arthur Baker produced and it had a stock of and water uh, mix on. I was like, nah, it's like, this is whack. It's like a sound. It sounds, it sounds like a big ass record. So I stuck my nose in and told, and so Joe, you know, um, give me a shot to mix it. <laughs> so, okay. So, so you got the budget for, to, 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 to do it. I hired Josh Milan to play keyboards for me. Josh was like, very young, okay, and we. I remember we did the record off key. Not that I knew back then what off key was, because I didn't have a musicians here. The group and Arthur Baker, everybody, they all they were like, "It's off key, it's off key," but it was banging. And I was like, uh, um, "What do you mean it's off key?" Now I know. I know. What do you mean it's off key? It sounds fine to me. No, it's off key. But because the shit hit the fan. You mean you mean they, they had to eat it up? That was that was my. Hang on, how did my, that happen? Did that record blow up? Who and why did that happen? Because I remember often them were not happy with the mix. They didn't like the way it sounded. I thought it was fierce, but I remember. No, every, no everybody. I mean, even when 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 Lila Van came in, it was like, "Yo, great work!" I was like, oh, so I remember shit. everybody playing it. Lila Van said, "Oh my god, they, you know what I mean?" But but but, but, but his was funny, right? That. Let's say going back to 87, 88, and even 89, my peers knew my work, right? When I first went to England in 1989 for the DMC thing, and I go to the record store, it's like, yo, I ruled the wall. You know what I mean? Between me and Frankie, it's like, Death Mix had a wall. You go to Black Market, it was like, wow. It's like, and it wasn't just the DJs that gave me credit, the clubbers gave me credit. See, the clubbers, it's not like today, what's happening in New York and America with the clubbers, but really clubbers all around, you know, you know, you know, um, give you props. But it was really, I have to say, the UK, the UK slash Italy, that when I went out there, I was a star and I was like, holy shit. I was like, I can't get arrested at home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, wow! Oh my God! And forget about because and even playing those early days in the U. I remember, and in, in, in 1989, and check this out. So, so a bunch of us were there: Bobby Shaw, Leslie. You know, the crew was out there for the DMC. Mickey Holloway and Pete Tom were playing at Cindy Astoria in London. This is when 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 when, when "Make My Body Rock" by Jamanda was out. And okay, I took my records, yo. I figured when I play, I'm gonna play. I played 55 minutes. Pete Tong says, yo, mate, that was great, because they were gonna put on, because they were gonna put Jamanda on. And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, Yeah, mate, great. And I was like, yo, I, it's like I was only warming up. I didn't pay, I it's like I didn't pay none of my cuts. You know what I'm saying? I thought blah blah blah. blah. It was like, yo, eh. Everybody, everybody from America was like, what happened? I was like, I don't know. And I was like, listen, I don't care about the money. And they were like, no, no, that's how we do things here. You were great. And I was like, oh. what do you mean I was great? You go, what it's do you like, mean? What I, was great? Great. I, played, right. I played 55 minutes. It's like, I mean, what are we talking about? Six records? Yeah. Seven? And anyway. Well, let's go back a little bit before we, because you instinctual. You, you, you see, you should have stopped me somewhere. All right, when okay, you say, when, no, no, because when you say tell me my life, it's like, I go, Poof. yeah, no, I know. We're gonna, but I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get the deaf mix part, how that creates. Right, listen, bring, bring it all on. You, you, you have, 
the next five hours. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> it's thanks to imagination blows up. And I know that in your name now on a major label scene and people who don't know you now know who David Morales is outside the peers. Okay. And the music industry is starting to see your name. I remember you were at Def at for the record at the same time. Did when did Def Mix and when did Frankie's relationship with you really take its place, its position? Um, me and Frankie hit it off within seconds. So I almost want to say we we were instantly great friends. Um, of course, no, he didn't tell me best time stories when we met. <laughs> but you know, we 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 met up for the record. You know what I mean, obviously, you know, Judy, Judy introduced us, you know, because Judy knew Frankie, they know each other. And, you know, it's funny, it's like I was already starting to do mixes. Frankie moved to New York because he was playing at the world. And we hit it off. And then, you know, we happened to, because we were, just, we were both starting to do mixes at the same time, we were working out of, uh, even working out of the, the studio. Um, and, and that Gary Salzman used to manage that was Reggie Lucas Studio, Quantum, Quantum Studios. And they used to send the car for us because they wanted the business. So, you know, the rate was great. Oh my God, who was mixing for us? Um, John Popo was, was, was a lot, a lot of our, Josh Milan was playing, was, was playing for, was playing for both of us as well. In 1987, it really, I came up with, Death Mix Productions, because Death back in them days, man, good. You know what I mean? That was the old hip-hop slang back then. Yo, that shit is death. So, you know, Chef Pettibon had Master Mix Productions. This one had this kind of production. So, okay, mixed by Dave Morales for Death Mix Productions. That's how that came about. You understand? Oh, but before even that, uh, but before I even did, wait, before Instinctual, there was two Puerto Ricans, a black man, and a Dominican. Right. Let's not forget. Let's not forget that. That's a big record too. That's another big so, one. Um, so I mean, um, you know, we just so that's how the name started, and then since Judy was representing the two of us, okay, you know what? Then we just do everything under the Death Mix umbrella, and you know, things just took off. We didn't listen. I don't think any of us really expected what you know anything you know because there's no plan i mean it's it's not like today that you know the, the game has been already the path we have shown the path to today's generation that now you can be a you know you can you can come up with a plan to build a career now you understand we come from a, well, i come from a place that there was no career you know what i mean even DJing wasn't a career. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Even DJing was, was, was a career. DJ right. uh, for, for a lot of people, I mean, unless you were one of those DJs, like I remember Bruce Fowler's played at Better Days, and he played five nights a week. Yo. I mean, a lot of DJs, when you had a resident, you had a residency. You understand? Um, so, I mean, okay, those that they you know, don't, Wait, let me just make sure I understand yeah. this. You are now coming up. You're basically writing the, you know, your own story, your epitaph at that point. What were you looking back to? Because people can look back at all of us and take notes, like you said. But at that time, what were you referencing to? to there was nothing. There was nothing to reference. To. That's right. To Absolutely you. nothing. I mean, listen. I said I had a job at a restaurant. Um, I dropped out of school. I was, you know, I fell into thing of about doing parties. You know what I'm saying? Um, that I was making money, gave me some notoriety, but who knows if if that if that would have been the game? Then I joined the record pool. I mean, which opened some doors. I got to network with people because I have to, as I reflect back, a lot of it was networking because had I not met, being in that organization, really has helped me to be where I am today. From from the top of the list to Judy Weinstein, you know, I mean, um, my biggest mentor and, you know, and an advisor to all the talent that I've met in there from Boos Forest to Jellybean to Kenny. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, all of that was all energy, positive energy to actually take in 
You know what I mean? And to really, and really just to open your eyes to, it's like, how do I say? It's like Bruce opened the studio. Oh, okay. Okay, that looks interesting. Okay, I'll buy a drum machine, even if I don't know how to buy a drum machine. If I don't know how to work a drum machine, I don't have to do it. I can't play key. Oh, she, I mean, it's like I was copying what Bruce Forrest was doing in better days. You know what I mean? I bought a drum machine. My first keyboard was a CZ 101. There you go. You know what I'm saying? I remember at the old one trying to play some notes, trying to be cool. I went, what the hell did I know what I was doing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I must have been playing some whack ass notes. Um, but you tried. But you tried. Well, you know what? It, That's the it's key. like, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> but was there a plan? No, absolutely not. I had no idea as far as remixing. You have to remember that. And then, and then where the remixing world went from one place, because the beginning of time, only when we did instinctual did we actually change all the music. Because before that, you, okay, you added, you added, you know, one or two keyboard parts. Maybe you had some percussions, you know what I'm saying? But you didn't alter that track at all. And then, and then when time stretching came in. Oof. Oh boy. Right? And once Steve Hurley killed it with Remember the Time by Michael Jackson. Everybody wanted a time stretch version. And it wasn't, they expected to rewrite the record every time after that. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, I have made, I have, I have made people millions while I got a standard fee. But I made people millions. You know what I'm saying? Retirement plans. You know what I'm saying? They bought houses. They like, you know, it's funny when I told some people some of the records that I made, they're like, You did that record? You did that record? It's like, yeah, that thing went by. That thing multi-plan, 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 multi-plan. You know what I mean? But you know what? It's like, and, and, and as I tell people today, it's like, you know, I sacrificed a lot to be where I am today. You understand what I'm saying? And by that I mean I worked in the studio every single day day i lived I, I lived in barry park city i rarely went home i sleep on the sofa you know what i'm saying we were turning over records in 48 hours you know what i'm saying bringing in three four keyboard players the percussion player you know what i mean the engineer put up the mix i i nap on the sofa it was ready for me in eight hours i go there you know and he went to bed i mean so you know but I loved every minute of it. You know what I'm saying? So I was mad. You know what I mean? It's like I was mixing two or three records a week. I was I was working at the hottest club in New York. I was working at, at the Red Zone. That's so right. It's like it's like it's like, uh, it's like a lot of people will play real to uh, uh, promos. I was playing real to reels. I was playing two new two to three new tracks every single week. It's like instead of records, I had a, I, I had shows of real to reels. I mean, wow, it's like when we when, when so like think back, listen, I have to knock on wood and I'm grateful. Thank you, Lord, has allowed me to ride this journey and still being a player in the game. You know what I'm saying? And still be a player so many years later. And, you know, as I've told some, I had this conversation with someone just the other day that I, I said, you know, it's like, it has to be your life. You, you understand what I'm saying? It's like, even, it's like, even today, it's like, okay, we go through whatever, whatever, whatever. It's like, you can be a part-time DJ. You can be a part-time producer. You know what I'm saying? And be the best that you can at it. You understand? Why, though? Why? Because if some you people have day jobs. Tell them why. You have to explain that. Why? You know. You said, right. Okay. But they, uh, they said, I had a day. They said, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've been able to take something that I love. Not many people have, have, have had this opportunity. Uh, but I was, um, I guess I got lucky and my cards fell the way they fell. You understand? In other words, I was mixing records. Um, I became, you know, a global superstar. I didn't intend it just happened. I started to travel the world. 
You know what I mean? Listen, the beginning, there wasn't great money in the beginning. Not like this shit is going on today. Um, so I, you know, so, you know, uh, I, 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 my reputation built a lot from remixing more than anything. And it's almost the same game today. If you really look at it, you know what I mean? It wasn't even about, I think a lot of people didn't know that I was career DJ. They thought I was a career remix of producer first. I mean, the outside world, um, when we, in reality, it's the opposite. You know what I mean? Like, DJ and DJ is in my blood. Um, you know, as I'm, 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 I'll be 59 this year, I don't see myself doing anything else. Do you know what I'm saying? There is nothing else. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm like an old dog. It's like, it's like telling the old person to move out of the house and they've been living there for 70 years. They're going to be like, I'm going to die here. Right. You're taking me out of a body bag. It's like, no, 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 no. So it's like, it's like, you know, as, as you see what's going on now, okay, so some of you know what I mean, for that person that has that regular job at the moment, that maybe you're part-time. When I mean by part-time, it's like, because let's say even us bedroom DJs, because we were all bedroom DJs, make no mistake, right? Sure. That mean that means we all had a we all had a priority job. Every single one of us. Every single one. Nobody was most people, nobody, I don't know somebody that was born a DJ from the beginning and child. So for a lot of us, yeah, we've had to. There was that job. And then when we came home, okay. Uh, when you uh, that's that one day out of the week that you took to go to the record store and spend what you allocated your allowance to buying certain records that weekend, and then you went home and you play music because you want to play music. Because how many of us were buying records and playing records at home and we had nowhere to play, right? But right, but we still keep it right. But we still DJ. We couldn't wait to get home to DJ. When it came to the weekend and you didn't have to go to work, when you got up in the daytime in the morning, you turned on your sound system. Just because it's that, that doesn't mean it's part-time because every day you went home, you practiced playing records every single day. When you got that itch, you're scratching that itch every single day. There's no way you're not, okay? And I'm talking about when you coming up with that hunger when you know, your 20s and your 30s, yo, chow, it's like, that thing is like, whoa. You know what I'm saying? So, and the same thing goes with, with producing. I mean, listen, I, I, I get up every day and, and, you know I mean, and sometimes the juices are flowing and sometimes they're not. But what I, but what I mean is that, that I love to do it and whatever spare time I have, obviously I have more spare time than the next one. But it's not to say because a person has more time. It, it's all about the dedication that you put toward it. Right. That's what that's about. The, the the quality of time that you put into it, That that's the thing. So, yes, you, you want to be a producer. You want to be a DJ. If you're a piano player, or you know, if you play keys, or, or you like to make music, so it's not that you need to be doing it eight hours a day. You know what I mean? But can you, can you do eight hours a day? Yeah, but that's up to you. Right. You know, you know, that's up to you. So that's the dedication. That means, okay, you get out of work at five, six o'clock. You go home. You have it. Yes, I understand. Well, for people that have families, you know what? God bless you. Cause that's a whole nother subject altogether. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But I mean, but I mean, there's a lot of guys that I know. A lot of DJs on the circuit don't really have families unless they're older already. You know what I'm saying? But in general, if you're that young kid coming up that you ain't married, you ain't got kids. Yes, you have a job. But yo, you go home, yo, yo, you get on your game. Right. You get on your game until you're ready to sleep. You know what I mean? Because my game, when I come to the studio sometimes and I live one minute away, but if I'm in that zone making music, yo, I skip a meal. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? I skip a meal. Because yeah. I know if I go home, I'm going to break that. But I don't want to go home. I'm in a zone. Now, I'm not in that zone all the time. Okay, you want to say something? <laughs> you know, because here's the thing that I, you know, again, when you mentioned that you guys changed the whole framework, I'm going to call you a framer because you. this is where you get the change position. 
where I remember hearing Judy Weinstein saying, you know, David and Frankie are reproducing these remixes. They weren't just remixes. They were reproductions. You guys had Satoshi, Terry Boris, all these great keyboard players. You guys were going in. You especially were going in. We heard the R&B version, which was one version. And then we heard the Morales version. Were you guys able to tell the companies, hey, we're reproducing. Are we able? We would like to have some publishing. That was too early in the game for that. That was too early in the game for that. Too early, right? I mean, listen, I did. My first big one was C.C. Penison, finally. Okay. My other biggest one, a lot of people don't know, is Mr. Loverman by Shaba Ranks. So when I did Shaba, because I used to play dancehall records, and Vivian Scott Chu came to me. She was doing a for Epic Records back at that time. And said, I want you to give me an American hit because it was a dancehall record and it was called Champion Lover. It wasn't even called Mr. Lover Man. So I had did um, um, another dancehall record before that, where it was Shaba and Maxi Priest. And that's where I got there, where Maxi said Shaba. So I totally got rid of everything and just kept, um, well, basically just the vocals. And I flipped, I actually flipped the chorus and I put Maxi Priest in there. Um, I had Eric play keys, put some put in piece of present hip hop beat under it. And the rest was golden history. I mean, so uh, I never expected that record to go like, to do what it did. That when I saw him as a guest on your senior hall show. Right. <laughs> and I was like, this guy's on your senior hall show because that record was massive. So we're talking about multi plan Yo, so that means the original writers and the producers, they went ran to the bank. I got a flat fee. Right. I got a flat fee. Okay. Now, I rewrote the music. Hell, they changed the title. They changed the title. Oh, you understand? They changed the title. That's a big, that's a big so, change. So you write when, the music and they change the title too. Go ahead. <laughs> when I'm watching your senior hall show, I never forget. I never forget to this day. I was sta standing behind a sofa. He thanked Chubb Rock. He changed somebody else. Nothing for them. And I was like, I don't exist. You know what I'm saying? I, I even went to the record release party. And it was all these hip-hop people, R&B. It was like, it's like, what am I doing here? Because... I was invisible. Meanwhile, I put that kid on the map. I mean, he was a big dancehall artist. Yeah. Mind you, you know what I'm saying? But that record, uh, until he opened his mouth and screwed things up, that thing was massive. And then let's take it to the next, let's take it to the next level. Now let's go to Mariah Carey, Dream Lover. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How the hell did you pull off getting her to tell the story complete? On that one. So they sent me the original, and I was, I was never a Mariah Carey fan. You know what I mean? Not, no, you know, I mean, it's not that in respect. I, I just wasn't, you know, I, 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 I didn't, I, I didn't listen to her music. She just, she, her, she wasn't in my lane. You know what I mean? So they sent me the original and we all know the original dream. Love. I was like, I can't do nothing with that bubblegum shit. I'm like, you know what I mean? It, so I just wait, wait, I was like, who are you telling this to? Because you're telling this to somebody. Judy, who are you talking no, to? Yeah, yeah, of course I told Judy like that. Well, she, no, she, I can't do this shit. She, she, she couldn't do it. Because I had to approve everything, say yes or no. And I was like, well, you, listen, Mariah Carey, when she was 21, she was the hottest she. Yo. But I was like, I, I can't do nothing with this. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and by 1993, you know what I mean? It's not 1987 anymore, 1988, when I'm I, I'm just mixing anything come them comes my way. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, I'm saying, <laughs> I mean, I'm saying no to David Bowie. I'm saying no to the Rolling Stones at this point. You know what I mean? And because I'm just not feeling the record. So, and I just threw it out. I was like, listen, this because they really wanted me to do it. It's like, this, it, I don't see anything happening unless she sings a record. Mind you, I've never produced a track in my life. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, 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 that's not true. I never produced a major artist. Right, because you did some records already by that yeah, point. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I did like, Robert Owens. I did Byron. Yeah. No, no, no. That, no, that was my first 
superstar, dude. And it was Mariah Carey. Okay. okay. Go ahead. They called me on the bluff. They called you out on it, right? They called me out. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> 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 because you know what we all thought that too he probably said he wasn't gonna get that shit and boom no listen i wasn't tripping as in cold it was like you know i was like i was still in remix land you know but so i got i i i go to see with copper and you know you know and we came up with the groove and me and copper came up with the groove we came up with that we had no vocals we had nothing we just created a track we created a piano that just looped you understand? That was it. She came in. She rocked that shit for points. I, we all got to hear Mariah Carey in a different way that we never even knew she was capable of. Which studio? You know we I mean? got at that, which studio were we working at that time? Do you remember? Quad, quad. Upstairs, right in the in the penthouse. No, I used to. I worked on. I, I used to. We used to rule. Uh, the eighth floor in the penthouse. Right. But, but, but but we had the eighth floor booked for many years. That we remember. Me and Frankie on the eighth. And, when, and, and whenever we used to override, we used to use use a penthouse. So she comes in and she rocks the mic. Really rocks the mic. She rocked that shit. I mean, you know, she took the same song and flipped it. The same song. Did all the vocals and everything. I was like, nobody could be in the session. No one. No one. And she was like, locked down. You know what I mean? Locked down. No friends. No. It's like engineer, producer, and that's it. Was this you? Her? Me, me, her, and John Popo. And that's it. No Tommy Matola, right? No Tommy Matola. Oh, of course. Tommy Matola. Yeah, he'd come in, but, you know, they had unlock and keep back in the days. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, and what's funny, the one record I got, the one remix I had royalties on, the one remix they didn't release on 12 Inch in America, only on promo. <laughs> only on promo. Jeez. They didn't want her to be recognized as, um, as a dance artist. And why is that dance word so bad? No, wait. But let's fast forward now to where we are now. You understand? Or let's no, go even up to 10 years. Wait, yeah, wait. No, no, no. But forget about that time because dance was like something. But now when we come into the EDM era where everything is dance and commercial, oh, now let's all do dance. It's accepted. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. But right. back then it was, Back then, it was like it was such a bad word. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? You imagine trying to get an R and B department if they knew that R and B artists got a dance mix, they didn't want to work it. They didn't want to work the record. They don't care how good it was. No, and let me tell you, and I don't. Okay, what people say. Listen, I mean, she, she gets her personal life all wrong. Whatever you want to say, but when it comes to her work in the studio, she's a real deal. I mean, I mean, she's she is she's no joke. Her writing skills, her singing skills, you know, her creativity, and the the singers I got to work with that I met, you know, Melanie, uh, you know, Melanie Daniels, for one that I've been working with almost thirty years. You know what I'm saying? Crazy, right? Thirty years. You know what I mean, you know what I mean, and 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 you know, to some of you folks out there, listen, I mean. I want y'all, and I'm talking about to the young DJ producers that are watching this and pay pay attention. It's like, yes, I'm good at what I do now, but I've had some great teachers and some great education along the way. Make no mistake, I am spoiled. I work with the baddest musicians. I remember when I was watching the Michael Jackson documentary and had Bashiri Johnson in it, and I'm like, that was my percussion player. You know what I mean? And he's in a documentary where he was on tour with Michael Jackson, Steve Thornton, Omar Hakim. Um, oh my God, the background singers, Terry Burris, Peter Schwartz, Eric Cupper. Um, I mean, you know, I've been spoiled by working with John Popple, David Sussman, Hugo Dwyer, from engineers to musicians to percussion players. I've worked with some of the best in the world. So, you know what I mean? The talent is like the bar is up here. It's ridiculous. Yeah. 
It's crazy. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, like I said, I'm doing this. I'm I'm making records since 19, uh, adding whatever, so really since 1985. So, you know, it's been a long, is it, and still evolving with the technology and still playing a game because thanks to the technology, because, you know, if you take your studio, thank God you have that studio in your house, Lenny. You have an amazing, I don't have an SSO, but even when I had. When, no, but me, had, why I have this is because I was around these guys. I say it all the time. Right. But, but at least, but the thing is, like back in them days, you know, it's like you had to rent a studio. It's like you, you, you had to plan and make time and schedule how you're going to go about this. Whereas today, you got your laptop and your shit. It's like my studio goes everywhere with me now. Yeah, even speaking. back then, you had to be correct because it costed good money. You couldn't jerk around if you were paying that yourself. Right? Right. Um, you, no, had to, right, right. No, you had to have a plan. You had to come in there, right? Otherwise, you're going to just throw money in the fire. But wait, but but let me give you a funny story. So I work with the first time I worked with Todd Terry, the legend. Okay. Now Todd Terry must have been born with an SB twelve hundred. I swear to God. And I say when well, he popped out that that machine was under his arm. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to do a record in my house. It was hear the music. And I said, you know, because I, I, lived, I lived in Brooklyn, Atlantic Avenue, and I had a bedroom there. That was a studio. I had a 16-track studio. We were used to envision them them days um, with the Mac, you know, had a console. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I asked Todd, Todd, you need me to rent anything? He goes, no, no, I don't need anything. You don't need anything. Okay. He shows up. She shows up with a box. SP-1200. Turn me out. <laughs> Turn me out. So when you hit Bango, Can You Party, Day in the Life, all those records, yo, SB 1200, yeah. case closed. You know what I'm saying? He like, what? You know what I mean? So <laughs> the one thing, and, and to tell people, and I had this conversation with someone the other day, it's like, you can't get caught up because, listen, especially the technology today, when it comes to plugins, man, it's like the store is endless. You understand? And sometimes some people may get caught up in thinking that they need all of this, all this equipment before they can actually start making records where it's like do the best and, and, and exploit whatever you can afford to get. You know what I mean? It's all about your creativity. And you know what I'm saying? If you got a box, work that box to death. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you just got a 909, beat the shit out of that 909. Own that machine. 